Digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website, the talking newspaper for Coventry. This is Outlook. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, and to this week's edition of Outlook being recorded on Wednesday the 6th of September 2023. And in this edition we'll be having more memories from the Charter House. We will be hearing about Fred Bassett, that cartoon strip which has been in the mail for many a long year from Sheila. The Yorkshire vet is uh, Peter Wright, you've probably seen him on television, and he will explain how uh, farming has changed over his lifetime. There's more on the hurdy-gurdy, uh, memories from the turn of the century in Coventry, and Keith talks about Spencer Park. And we'll finish off with this programme with Dave completing his report from the World Blind Games. And of course, there's all the usual items which I shall not repeat yet again, because I'm sure you're well aware of them. But first, we'll start with this week's news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. <laughs> Proposals to shut ticket offices at local train stations have again come under fire from a local MP. Speaking after a rally outside Downing Street, Zara Sultana said the plan should be scrapped. The consultation to review how tickets are sold at train stations across the UK, including in Coventry and Warwickshire, closed on September the 1st. The proposals could see closures at Canley, Tile Hill and Coventry Arena stations under West Midlands trains, while Avanti West Coast could close the ticket office at Coventry train station. Coventry South MP Ms Sultana is leading calls to save the ticket offices. She joined the RMT union last Wednesday in a rally at Downing Street and called the plans an attack on passengers, the railway and the public. Ms Sultana says the plans are disgraceful. She says they will affect the elderly and disabled the most and that the railway should be made fully accessible for all. Subject to the outcome of the consultation, the proposals would include the phasing out of ticket offices. It would see the Coventry ticket office closed completely and staff would be told to provide customer service at the self-service machines. Commenting on the end of the consultation period on ticket office closures, she said, It's no surprise the proposals have been met by an outcry from people in Coventry and across the country, with constituents telling me it would make using the railways all but impossible, and more than 500,000 people speaking out about the closures. It is unknown if staff levels would be affected by the changes, the Rail Delivery Group say Passenger Watchdog's Transport Focus and London Travel Watch will continue to analyse the train operator proposals and the responses from the consultation before providing a response to train operators over the next few weeks. Chief Executive of Rail Delivery Group Jacqueline Starr said since the use of mobile phones, the number of ticket office usage has dropped to historic lows and the trend is rapidly accelerating. 
For rail to survive and thrive long term, like any responsible industry, we need to change and evolve with our customers, she said. The taxpayer is continuing to subsidise the railway, and we believe that now is the right time to move staff to more flexible, engaging roles so that they can better support customers face-to-face with a whole range of needs, from finding the right ticket to navigating the station and getting support with accessibility needs. We also understand that some customers have particular challenges and they should be supported in any transition. Over the coming weeks, we will work closely with passenger watchdogs to review and adapt individual proposals where necessary. Coventry City Council has a multi-million pound black hole, worrying data shows. The news comes amid a warning from Unison that some UK councils will not be able to provide even basic services after a BBC study found a £5 billion black hole in public finances. The BBC's shared data unit has found the average council now faces a predicted deficit of £33 million by the year 2025-26, a rise of 60% from £20 million two years ago. The data shows that Coventry City Council is facing a deficit of more than 50 million. Unison said it meant some would not be able to offer the legal minimum of care next year. The local government association said inflation, the living wage and energy costs were adding billions to budget books. Together, the 190 authorities surveyed said they would need to find £5.2 billion to balance the books by April 26 even after making 2.5 billion of cuts this year. Coventry City Council did not respond to a request for comment. However, the authorities' communications team recently issued a release with a stark warning about the city's finances. The council's finance chief, Councillor Richard Brown, said the situation is so bad that the council is running out of options and that he will be writing to the government to ask them to step in. He said the crisis was largely due to spiralling social care costs. In Coventry, in 2011, we spent around 40% of our budget on social care, but in 2023 it is now almost 70%, he said, as well as dealing with greater numbers of vulnerable people who need complex care packages provided by external companies, the cost of all services continues to spiral due to inflation. A local school has been named as having a type of concrete that has sparked a sudden nationwide order to close unsafe school buildings. The primary has been identified, but officials say it will not close. Schools were told to shut just days before the new academic term is due to start, after they were found to contain a certain type of concrete prone to collapse. Reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete known as rack, is the same type of concrete that has been found in some hospitals deemed to be unsafe. Warwickshire County Council has now confirmed one of its schools, Outwards Primary in Atherstone, was impacted by the presence of rack, but said it had not been forced to close. The school has been monitored closely for several years during which time we have installed precautionary supports to provide additional weight-bearing support and safety guarantees, a spokesperson said. 
The school does not need to close thanks to early interventions and engagement and we continue to work closely with both the school staff and the Department of Education on a programme of works that began this year which has removed the greatest risk areas completely towards permanently resolving all of the issues. Coventry City Council will continue to inspect school buildings under its control in the wake of the worrying, crumbling concrete scare. The Department for Education announced on last Thursday that 104 schools across the country have been forced to close immediately over serious safety fears. But no schools in Coventry are said to be affected at this stage. But Coventry City Council has said it will continue to carry out inspections. A new study has revealed that Coventry has been ranked second as the worst place in the West Midlands for fly tipping. The study, conducted by reliable skip hire, analysed DEFRA's latest statistics to discover where the fly tipping rates are highest across the country, with data compared to the population to even out the results. The data revealed Coventry as the second fly-tipping hotspot after 24.68 incidents were recorded per 1,000 people in the city. The city follows after Samwell, which topped the list with 33.84 incidents in 2021-2022, uh, double the national average in the UK, which is currently 19.07 per 1,000 people. There have been numerous articles on the fly-tipping issue in the city, especially on the streets of Foeshill, where heaps of rubbish, cardboard, mattresses and furniture are emptied out onto the streets. This is the community that locals say is a pest paradise, with high population density and hot weather contributing towards the issue. The area was named the city's worst fly-tipping spot this year, with more than 4,000 reports in one year. However, many have called for the council to act on the matter with urgency. Following Coventry being second, Telford and Rekin came third, while Birmingham was fourth and Tamworth completed the top five. Whereas on the other end of the scale, there were just 2.95 fly-tipping incidents in Malvern Hills per 1,000 people, the lowest rate in the West Midlands. Operation Director of Reliable Skips, Paul Bennett, explained the findings. Fly-tipping in England is a growing concern. The data shows that there were around 714,000 incidents of fly-tipping recorded in England in 2012-2013, a figure which has gone up to more than 1 million in 2021-22, more than a 50% increase over 10 years. A drug stand in Coventry has been shut down by police following complaints from local residents about antisocial behaviour and drug dealing. West Midlands Police's problem-solving and legal services teams applied for a closure order against a property in Rolleston Road, Radford, on August the 31st, following a raid at the address six days earlier. Officers attended as part of Op Advance and found a large amount of drug paraphernalia inside. Now the teams have successfully applied for a closure order, making it an offence for anyone to enter the premises until November the 30th this year. The den was being used for so-called cuckooing. This is a criminal activity in which a vulnerable person is exploited by groups who often use their home as a base for drug dealing and other crime. 
It is one of a number of cuckooing cases cracked by local police. Earlier this year, closure orders were secured against two properties in the city for the very same reason. The properties in Adelaide Street and Barris Green were both showing early signs of cuckooing. Officers from the Coventry Problem Solving Team secured the orders. They prevented anyone not named in them from entering. Police said at the time that those orders were to protect the people living at each address and allow appropriate safeguarding to take place. The address in Adelaide Street was raided in May and Class B drugs were recovered. The Barris Green property had been subject to a number of complaints from neighbours about loud noise and antisocial behaviour, as is often the case in such situations. When officers visited, they found evidence of drug taking inside. Inspector Dave Langston from Coventry Gangs team said at the time, this was an extremely positive piece of proactive work to protect two vulnerable individuals from becoming victims of cuckooing. Campaigners are celebrating after plans to install an eyesore foam mast in a Coventry neighbourhood were refused by the council. Signal Infrastructure UK had applied for permission to erect the 15-metre 5G mast in Sutton Avenue, Mount Nod, but this week officers at Coventry Council turned down the application. The move has been welcomed as excellent news by Councillor Gary Ridley, leader of the Conservative Party on the Council, who launched a petition against the plans in which a total of 133 people signed. In papers submitted as part of the application, Signal Infrastructure said it was committed to providing improved network coverage and capacity, most notably in relation to 5G services. There is an acute need for a new base station to provide effective service coverage. The company said the proposed location would assimilate well into the immediate street scene and not be detrimental and listed a number of alternative sites that had been considered and were deemed unsuitable, including Holmes Drive, Frederick Neal Avenue and Clifton Close. But planning officers at the council disagreed that Sutton Avenue was a suitable site. In a letter outlining the decision to refuse the plans, strategic lead for planning Rob Back said the 5G mast would be an undesirable and highly conspicuous and incongruous feature to the detriment of the visual amenities of the locality and the value of public open space. He added, the applicant had failed to demonstrate that there are no technically feasible, less harmful alternatives available. A move to ensure new homes of multiple occupation in Coventry fit better with communities is due to be signed off by councillors this week. It will mean family homes in certain areas of the city cannot be turned into HMOs without full planning permission. People living in areas with lots of this kind of housing say the change is essential to tackle the problems they are facing. Some have been campaigning for the move, called an Article 4 direction for years. The Chapelfields Area Residents and Traders Association told a council consultation that their historic area had been popular with families until recently. This part of the city mainly has two to four bedroomed homes with limited parking, decent sized bed gardens and good access to local schools and the town centre. 
But for the last five to ten years, a number of family homes there have been turned into HMOs. The impact on the area has been huge, they said. Where previously residents would stay in the area for years, now we have tenants of HMOs who stay for a matter of months. The parking situation has become unbearable, with some houses now having four to five cars, where before they would have had only one to two. Long-term residents are considering leaving the area because of the number of HMOs. We believe Article 4 is essential to stopping further decline of our community. Officers, others told the council that they support the plans, with one saying the Cannon Park estate is now unrecognisable and asking for the move as a matter of urgency. Generally, but not always, the student homes are in disrepair. Front gardens are not managed, litter is a problem, as is the proliferation of shopping trolleys all over the estate. Coventry Action for Neighbourhoods was set up eight years ago to try and get the council to bring in an Article 4 direction. In a recent newsletter, the group said they are pleased councillors have listened. It means we, like other university towns and cities, will have a proper way of controlling the HMOs. Coventry Market is a pale imitation of what it used to be in years gone by. That's the view of residents who have reminisced about what they claim to be the good old days when they remember the market being jam-packed with stalls. They said they recall the sound of yelling sellers filling the air and fondly remembered a market they said would be heaving with bargain hunters. Dozens of people made observations in response to a story on the modern-day plight of the market where traders strive, often in vain, to stem the three-pronged tide of internet shopping, working from home and never-ending cost-of-living crisis. Benson Joseph News said, That's what happens when students are prioritised instead of the people who grew up and live here. It's not the same anymore. Kim Sutherland said she used to love the market, often going with her mum who would buy meat and Caribbean vegetables, but claimed it no longer has the same appeal. You could get your nails and eyebrows done and then have a roast pork sandwich afterwards. It was also so lovely at Christmas too. Shame it's not as bustling, but that's life. Everything changes, keep up or get left behind. Former stallholder Tessa Leesley urged uh, the people of Coventry to get behind the market. There's little to no support for traders, she said. I had the pleasure of working in the market for five years, and the traders are like a family to each other. We grieved losses and celebrated wins. The traders need us all to support them and for the council to be on their side. Police have arrested a man on suspicion of murder after two people were killed when they were hit by a car in Coventry. A 33-year-old man was detained in Beckbury Road, Walsgrave, following a series of collisions in the city around 8am last Monday. He has since been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. A 44-year-old pedestrian on Gosford Street and a 47-year-old cyclist in Woodway Lane sadly died of their injuries. Our thoughts are with the families and friends of those who have tragically lost their lives, and we'll be doing all we can to support them during this deeply distressing time, a West, Mid <coughs> a West Midlands police spokesperson said. 
Another pedestrian who was struck on Gosford Street has been treated for injuries which are not life-threatening. We're not looking for anyone else in connection with what happened, and from the information we have, this is not being treated as terror-related. Coventry Post Office has moved to bigger, fully refurbished premises. Charter Post Office opened at the end of August after moving just a few doors down to 282 to 286 Charter Avenue. Last year, the postmaster for Charter retired after 41 years' service at the 290 Charter Avenue. The new postmaster wanted to move to the bigger premises for a convenience store and a post office. The postmaster firmly believes that the move will help secure continued access to post office services locally, as well as supporting the viability of their business. The new opening hours are Monday to Friday 9am to 6pm and on Saturday 9am to 2pm. Post Office Network Provision Lead Anne Murphy said the new premises look great. They're modern, light, bright and airy. The bigger premises have allowed the new postmaster greatly to increase his retail range and customers will also benefit from longer post office opening hours. The new shop has a wide automatic door and level access at the entrance and room for a wheelchair to manoeuvre inside. Parking is available right outside. Staff at a historic dream home turned nursery are celebrating after their remarkable setting received top marks in its first Ofsted inspection. The regulators' feedback on Little Big Adventure at Wakefield Crossing Cottage in Canley could barely have been more gushing. In rating it outstanding right across the board, inspectors were bowled over by every single element of the nursery, which was launched by former primary school teacher and recruitment consultant Anna McCausewer in June 2021. Children flourish within this awe-inspiring setting, the report says, this is due to the unwavering support and dedication of the staff who hold the highest expectations for children's learning. As a result, children develop into confident and independent learners, displaying remarkable levels of curiosity and a thirst for knowledge. It raises outstanding in quality of education, behaviour and attitudes, personal development and leadership and management amounting to top marks in the overall effectiveness category. Of all the first-time inspections carried out nationwide by Ofsted since September 2021, only 10% of providers achieved an outstanding grade. Less than one in five nurseries that have previously scored outstanding or good achieved top marks during that same time frame. The manager demonstrates an extensive knowledge of the needs of the families and children attending the setting, Ofsted said of Anna's direction and expertise. Work has started to create a community-led blossom garden and natural play area at Charterhouse Heritage Park. The National Trust and Historic Coventry Trust are developing the space for the Blossom Together in Coventry project, which has been funded through the People's Postcode Lottery. The project aims to create a space where conventions can connect with nature and enjoy blossoming trees, along with a small natural play space for families and children. 
Two mounds have been created to form a grassy amphitheater in the play space, and the area will be cordoned off until later this month to allow the grass to grow. Wildflowers will also be planted to attract bees and other wildlife to the area. In the October half-term, 20 blossom trees will be planted by Coventrians, including youngsters from local schools, and the space will officially open in the spring. The blossom garden and natural play space are being created next to the Charter House. Test pits were dug during the Festival of Archaeology to search for the lost Chapel of St Anne and to check the ground for historical remains before the landscaping works began. Historic Coventry Trust Education and Engagement Manager Sarah Allen said the Blossom Garden will become a well-used and much-loved space for people living and working in the area. It would, could be a Christmas to remember in Coventry as plans have emerged for a huge big wheel to be installed in Broadgate. The giant fairground ride is planned to be in place from November the 14th until January the 7th and it's hoped that it will attract people into the city centre over Christmas, as well as acting as a beautifully illuminated landmark. But people are less than sure that it will be a hit. Residents have had their say, and many feel that the efforts would be better spent on tackling the number of empty shops in the city centre. Not everyone was quite so cynical, however, with the idea being welcomed by some. The plans have been lodged by Coventry City Council and, if approved, the attraction will be provided by the Giant Wheel Company. Observation wheels are a proven success for attracting crowds to shopping malls, city centres and events, the company's brochure says. The wheels also act as a landmark, especially at night, when they are spectacularly illuminated. Here's a selection of comments from people who have been discussing the idea. How about wheeling in some decent shops first, before being wheeled around in the air? It would be great complimented by Christmas stalls. Or maybe something more original. Wow, that's awesome. Be brilliant for seeing all those empty shops from... And just think of all the crimes you could see up there. Outlook News. So, uh, that completes the uh, roundup of this week's local news from Elaine and myself. Uh, now, before we move on, I've got a few more things to say rather than just the usual thing about lighting up, which is, um, well, lighting down is 6.26 in the morning when the sun rises and lighting up is 7.22 when the sun disappears. I've now got some apologies to make. Uh, now, um, you may have noticed one or two of you didn't get a, a, a programme last week. That was, I think, because we had the problem of uh, bank holiday and the postman wasn't really very... Uh, very readily bringing our bullets back. So we were a bit short last week. Hopefully everyone's going to get them this week. Also, I will say about last week, uh, on my uh, memory stick, we did seem to have a double talking over in one of the pieces done by Sue. It started off all right, and all of a sudden Pete and uh, Sue start over, over the top of that again. But
but however, it sorted itself out in the end. I apologise for that. And also, I apologise for letting it know that we're full of it this week because clear it all out in one go. Um, podcast's been down for some time, uh, as you may have noticed. I'm told it's back again, and Alexa is now putting you through to the Coventry newspaper rather than the Enfield one, which it's been doing for the last three or four weeks. So those are the apologies. And finally, just reminders: we've got two reminders for you, which we mentioned before. Uh, Sunday the seventeenth, that's Sunday week. Uh, we've got um, that bands in the park, which is at Culloden Castle Park with the Covington Silver Band, and also at the Belgrade Theatre from the nineteenth to the twenty-third of September. It's Heather's the Musical. Uh, now we're going to move on to local things and parochial things with Hugh. Welcome, Hugh. Hello there. Uh, well, not that, not that. Lo- we will start local. Okay. Uh, certainly never parochial. <laughs> uh, <laughs> parochial by the resource centre. By the resource centre. <laughs> yes, in the parish of the resource centre, uh, of which I am the high priest. I'm told. Uh, anyway, um, the uh, this coming Saturday, the 9th of September, uh, we have the charity shop here at the centre going large in the car park. Uh, hot deals for cooler days, uh, and there's some lovely uh, things that June has uh, dug out, and uh, so there'll be a really nice big sale there. So if you fancy coming along, supporting the charity, but also grabbing a bargain or two or three or ten, then this, this Saturday is the time to do it. it runs from ten o'clock till three o'clock. Oh no, actually ten o'clock till four o'clock. At three o'clock, we draw our um, grand summer raffle prize. First prize, £250, so this is your last chance. If you need tickets uh, for the Grand Summer Raffle, uh, you can uh, get them from reception, or if you do as you should and come to the shop event on Saturday, uh, you can pick them up there. They're a pound a ticket, um, uh, or £5 for a book of five, because that's the way maths works. So It's going to be a good day, too, isn't it? Weather-wise. Yes, weather-wise, it's going to be gorgeous. Uh, such a lovely day. Some exotic booze. <laughs> right. Um, now, uh, we have regular meetings uh, with the visual and hearing impairment team of the uh, Coventry City Council. Now, you'll know um, Alison and Angela and Kelly and how great they are. Anyway, at our regular meeting uh, yesterday... Um, they said, oh, have you got a trusted traders list? And I said, well, no. I mean, it's something we've been really wanting to do for, you know, for some time. And, you know, I did sort of start a list uh, together, again, a list together a couple of years ago, actually. And I had quite a good list going. Um, and then my computer broke and I lost absolutely everything on it, uh, which was a very difficult day, I can tell you. However, um, we would like to get a trusted traders list going. What this means is it is uh, people who um, we can verify as are honest and good people who charge fairly and who will do work, you know, and particularly people who, who, who will be aware perhaps of people with visual impairments and, you know, the challenges that they face. Because, you know, you know uh, it's too easy, you know, to get you know, ripped off. And sometimes you just yeah. want somebody to come and, like, you know, hang a loo roll holder up, and sometimes, you know, you might want all your windows replaced. Well, I tell you what, we would like. I would like to open this out to you, you guys. Could you 
let us know if you've got like um, you know a somebody that you use that you trust and you think is absolutely great um, to let us know who they are uh, because that way we can get together a really good list of plumbers and roofers and window people and odd job, uh, men, odd job yeah, men you know uh, or job women you know yeah. odd job Sorry. persons, persons yeah. yes um, but you know uh, just if you send us their information and sometimes it just has to be telephone number you all need yes it would help with name and telephone number and what they do, mm-hmm. uh, which would be useful. You know, we have a good list ourselves, actually, of people that we use here at the centre, but also that you know we know do other work. You know, I've got a great aerial man. I've got some great heating engineers and plumbers that we can call on, and uh, you know, and window people as it happens. Uh, but you know, you may have more, and in different parts of the city. And then what we'll do is we'll put that together as a list, as our trusted trader list. We will vet everybody that goes on there, by the way. So it won't be, um, it won't be just uh, you know, we won't be doing no work about it we won't just be gathering names but we will we will talk to them all and see if they would like to be on our trusted traders list um, uh, and when it's available uh, as a full list or a foolish list um, I will let you know and so then if you need someone you can give us a call we will share that list as well with the council because they you know, they often get those requests as well um, so there we are so that's that sounds good um, I'm really pleased to say that we have got a couple of new drivers, minibus drivers, joining us. Um, Anthony started today, uh, and uh, he's going to be absolutely great. Uh, very friendly, nice guy. So uh, you'll see him around. Uh, and then we've got a chap called Mick, uh, who is uh, going to be joining us probably for only a few months. He's, he's between jobs, but really nice guy. Actually, he may stick around for longer because he works from home, and that's a bit more flexible. So uh, <laughs> once he's himself out anyway but uh, hopefully he'll be starting next week or the week after and then um, uh, you know we'll have even more we've been doing pretty well on getting um, uh, new minibus drivers in I tell you what the poster in the gents loo at the Royal Oak <laughs> has uh, accounted for three new people really yes absolutely yes little sexist should not have one of the ladies well, well, well. <laughs> we, th- there may well be one there uh, 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 I, I haven't checked personally um, but um, uh, Claire said the next time she was down there she would she would have a, have a look and, and if not she would uh, uh, she would say she would put one in there as well but uh, it's, it seems to be a really good place to put posters yeah, so there we are so that's very good uh, now um also arising out of our meeting with um, with the visual and hearing impairment team yesterday, um, we talked. There's an organisation, another charity called um, Deafblind Enablement. Um, they're really, really nice charity, very nice little charity uh, with very good people working for them. And their role is to help people who've got dual sensory loss, so people with hearing impairment and sight impairment get out and about a bit to do uh, to do things that they might not be able to do otherwise you know with getting out with mobility finding out information that they want uh, perhaps you know in you know certain um, you know very serious cases um, helping people to communicate with others because uh, through uh, deaf blind manual sign language though there's not m- many people in Coventry and we know you know one of those is our dear Edwina anyway um, who is uh, who is supported by uh, this charity deaf blind enablement is this a local charity yeah. uh, well actually they're based they're, I think they're actually based in Leicester but they do have a contract with the city council mm-hmm. um, so 
Some, so a communicator guide is what they will supply, and there's somebody who's a specially trained professional who acts as the eyes and ears of someone who's deafblind or has combined uh, sight and hearing loss. Uh, so it can support any number of people to do pretty much anything, uh, you know, within reason. So if you or someone you know um, has dual sensory loss um, and is in financial need as well because it is a means-tested service, this one, um, we would be really interested to know um, because, you know, there is uh, free support available uh, to help people just get out and about a bit more and to do some, uh, do extra things. So um, give us a call here um, at uh, the centre and we, we will pass on your information and we'll, uh, to, to the charity or make a referral through to um, Adult Social Care at the City Council, which may be the best route. I haven't quite decided which is the best route yet. But we know this charity very well. They're very lovely people, really know what they're doing. So if you've got a, a, a hearing impairment and a visual impairment and you need some extra support just to get out and do stuff because of both of those things and you know, money's a bit tight, then do please get in contact and we will uh, see if we can help you out. Sounds good. And that, dear friends, is it for this week. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for you this week. We'll be back next week, I hope. Yes, all things being equal. Telling us how much lovely loot you got from Saturday. Yes, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, we'll be doing that. I mean, the, the charity shop here at the centre is well. it's small, but it does really well. You know, considering so. it's been off the beaten track, it yes, very well. But it has, a, it has a very nice reputation locally, and they do have some fantastic things. I tell you what, if you like um, weird... Uh, sculptures with skulls in the middle of them. <laughs> they've got about four at the moment that they've been donated. Like Halloween to me. <laughs> y- yes, sort of also um, heavy metal. You oh, know, I see. Yes, uh, of course. That sort, yes. Of, yes. that sort of death metal <laughs> thrash sort of stuff. And I know that, you know, many of our elderly listeners will be very keen on thrash metal. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But nevertheless, they have these fantastic things in there. And, uh, you know, hey, maybe you've got a thrash metal-loving or death metal-loving grandson or granddaughter who might really appreciate these things. Anyway, they're there, and uh, they're fairly spectacular, and more importantly, for sale. That reminds me, it's not just clothes, is it? It's no, all sorts of, all stuff, sorts yeah. of other stuff. Yeah. They've got some beautiful things in there. There's some Good. jackets in there that I really liked, except they're just a little bit too small. <laughs> Thanks you. Okay. See you next time. Bye. Outlook Sport. Well, hi there, folks. It's very sleepy Sarah today. Blame the heat. But if I say, oh, did you hear the snoring? It won't be a cat. That's all I'm saying. Right. I'll start off with a roundup of the local weekend football. At the weekend, Coventry took on Watford, who until last season were in the Premier. Now, we won a penalty soon after the match had started, though it was a very dodgy penalty, whether it should have been given. But it made no difference anyway, because Matthew God missed. Then they scored. Watford 1-0. But then we equalised through a fantastic free kick from about 27 yards by one of our 11 
summer signings. This one, Van Ayak. But then they scored again, Watford 2-1. But then they scored again, but they scored for us. When one of their defenders backheeled straight past their goalie into our net. 2-2. However, we returned the compliment not long after by one of our defenders backheeling this time straight into the path of one of their strikers who scored 3-2 to Watford. But then, Matthew Godden scored. Great goal made by Hadji Wright, another of our 11 summer signings. 3-0. There then followed seven minutes of extra time, which was to put it mildly frenetic and not good for those of us with a nervous disposition. But 3-3 was how the comedy of errors finished. And I think on balance it was a fair result. Now the FA Cup is just about getting going but we're in the very early rounds. Many of our really small teams like my lovely Coventry United didn't actually get through the qualifying qualifying round. Anyway, Leamington, I'm pleased to say, beat Cozill Town 2-0 and go into the hat tonight for a draw for the next round. However, Nuneaton lost 1-2 at home, as did Stratford by a similar margin. Nuneaton losing to Carlton Town and Stratford losing to Spalding. So this means that there are only two local sides left in the FA Cup, Leamington and the mighty Sky Blues. I mean, it's great because you get a real bit of romance and at the games you get everybody singing the Wembley song. But ultimately we know that it'll be one of the big boys who will probably hold the trophy in May. But it's fun while it lasts. Now, in America, the US Open tennis rumbles on. The great news was that all seven of our players made it through the first round and so played in the second round, pocketing, I believe, £98,000. Nice work if you can get it. Um, however, they then began to fall by the wayside, most notably in the second round, Sir Andy Murray. But then in the third round, we lost Cameron Norrie, who was really expected to do better and had been seeded that way. We also lost Katie Bolter and Dan Evans, but a big shout-out to Dan because he lost to the world's number one and the Wimbledon champion, Carlos Alcaraz, but did take a set off off Alcaraz, and my gosh, he put up a battle. But that means at the time of recording, which is Monday, getting in quickly, we still have one player in the last 16. 
for the first time ever, Jack Draper has made it into the second week of a Grand Slam major. So well done there, Jack. You're one of the top 16 players in that US Open. Now on Friday of this week, the Men's Rugby Union World Championships kick off, literally kick off. When, now they are staged in France, but mostly in Paris, but held across nine cities in addition. And the opening match is between France and New Zealand, so it's a rather tasty opener. Now, in the 36-year history of the championships, there have only ever been four winners, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and England. But this year, the favourites to lift the crown or the Webb Ellis Cup are Ireland, ranked world number ones, with Scotland ranked fifth, England ranked eighth, and Wales ranked tenth. Come on ye Wales! I don't think the English stand a lot of chance given their pre match warm-up results but the great thing is we're still ranked ahead of Australia yeah now England play their first match on Saturday the 9th which is the same day as Ireland face Romania England face Argentina I'm afraid I don't have a time for that but it's going to be a busy day for England fans because in the football the men's team play their European qualifier against Ukraine and I do know that that is a 5pm kickoff. but back to the rugby then on Sunday the 10th Scotland are playing, meeting South Africa, the reigning champions. And Wales are also playing Fiji, who some of you may remember notoriously beat England at Twickenham recently. The 20 teams are divided into four groups. And in each group, the winner and the runner-up go through to the quarter-finals. And each team gets four points for a win, two points for a draw. There's a bonus point if you score four or more tries. And there's also a bonus point for the losing side if you lose by less than seven points. I know that the BBC are screening this. Um, I don't have details, as I say, of timings, but I know it will be covered across the Radio 5 network. So, what more are we waiting for? When the tennis finishes, the rugby starts, and while the rugby's on, there's going to be some golf, but more of that next week. So this has been your sport and I congratulate myself for not falling asleep despite the heat. Bye! Yeah, sir, it's enthusiasm for sport is very evident there, isn't it? Uh, has something rubbed up on you? Tell us about it in Postback. This is Postback. 
further discussion. Hi there, great to meet up with you again through Your Spot Postbag, and it's great to hear from Robert Franklin, whom I met with his friend Tony Irish at the Women's Gold Ball at the CBS Arena, Coventry, where England beat Germany 8-2 in an exciting game. Robert says, British blind sport really enjoyed it, thank you. Gold Ball was fantastic. Thank you to you, Robert. If it wasn't for you sending in a message to Outlook about the Blind Sports Day and then telling the listeners about the World Blind Games, which you read out, hardly anyone would have known about them. As a result of you sending in that message, Hugh phoned me up offering to get me a press pass for the Games. I went to three of them and met and interviewed some fantastic people on your behalf. That just shows you what sending in messages to Postbag can achieve. I also went to the opening ceremony and as the flags of 70 nations were paraded on stage, the Inner Vision Orchestra played, led by sitar player, the daughter of Ravi Shankar, who taught George Harrison to play the sitar. Graham Whale tells me he prefers his other daughter. There is an Indian theme to Julia's report. Pictures, but not at an exhibition. Good old Heather Wilson is an artist. I went to see her with Wendy the Warden at the Gateway Club. She paints unusual things. I wonder if she could paint my friend John. He's very unusual. He'd look better if he was a different colour. Maybe pink with green stripes. Usually... She paints hats or people's families. Sometimes she goes to India to find things to paint like weddings because they still have weddings in India. She wears saris too, so maybe she goes to India to wear her sari. And she doesn't stop at painting. She also makes montages of photographs and puts them into frames. Her talk was called Mad Beautiful Things. If she made a montage out of photos of my friend John, it would be mad, but I don't think it would be very beautiful. Wendy the Warden said her things were very expensive, so she didn't buy me one. She was a nice lady, though, and came to talk to me afterwards, but I couldn't feel any of her work. Still, good old Wendy the Warden explained everything to me. I wish Heather Wilson would paint my friend John. He could do with a look. A lick of paint. Love, Julia. Well, actually, uh, John is very colourful, including his braces. <laughs> but, well, he can't beat nature's paintbrush. Ned Wiener talks about the colours of autumn. Hi, everybody. It's Ed Wiener. I'm just smiling because I know that there's been seven hard weeks with the children after school. I do hope all you mums and dads have coped and enjoyed a lovely holiday. They'll soon be going back come September when nearly there and then you can Relax again. Meanwhile, take care 
and look forward to the colours of autumn. I always think autumn is lovely, even though I can't see it now. I do have a, a good imagination. Nature is wonderful. Take care, everybody. Keep happy and well. Love, Edwina. Thank you, Edwina. I've just bought a russet red pullover for the winter to go with my brown trousers. Talking about children going back to school, you might be interested in the silver screen at the Odeon, which have a film show at 1pm on a Tuesday for about £5 something, including tea and a biscuit. That's only when the children are at school. If you feel that's not for you as you can't see the films, they have audio description on every screen at the Odeon, so please ask for the headsets. Let me know how you get on. So please let me know what you do for entertainment. This is what Julia's friend John does. And according to him, not a lot. Hello David, you ask what we do for entertainment. Well, this is the expurgated version. I'll save the gorier details for when I think you and your listeners are ready for them. Meanwhile, what do I do for fun? Skydiving? Tightrope walking? Turnip juggling? Nah, don't do any of those things. Not anymore, anyway. Well, not, never, actually. But would I like to do these things? Not in my wildest imagination. Well, no, as a matter of fact, the effort of just imagining those things has made me cream-crackered. I'm only in the resource centre for two mornings each week. When I'm not there, I'm quite happy to rest in my armchair. Does anybody remember Andy Cap, my hero? I can watch rubbish TV till the cows come home, and since I don't own any cows, it could be a very long wait. It's even better when Jessica, my partner, is working in the garden. That means I can be really helpful lounging in my armchair watching TV, but when the adverts are on, taking the occasional glance through the window and supervising the gardening. When Jess comes in for a cup of tea or, or a rest, I'm able to tell her all the things she's not doing right and passing on advice. I think she's very grateful. Uh, I am thinking of doing a sponsored sit-in to make some money for the resource centre, but I'm only thinking about it. I'm stymied by the thought of canvassing sponsors and then collecting the money. That would take a lot of unnecessary effort. If someone could take over those roles, we may be in business. So what do we do for entertainment? Not a lot. My dad, rest his non-existent soul, didn't get much right, but he always said I was a good for nothing. I enjoy nothing, and I'm very good at doing it. I'm tired now. Lots of love. Julia's friend, John. Well, thank you, John. Well, I do see you getting on your bike, and that's what Grummy presenter Tony Butler used to tell people to do. Here's Graham to talk about him. Well, the death occurred of broadcaster Tony Butler recently at Tony, not John, the local rugby reporter. Tony Butler is uh, said to have invented the uh, football phoning on local radio. And in fact, I can remember him doing just that on BRMB in the 1970s. 
also Ed Doolan, who they both moved to the BBC eventually. Uh, Tony Butler came from the black country. He had a broad black country accent at a time when it wasn't the thing to have an accent in the media. And he wasn't a charmer in any stretch of the imagination. He said it as, it as it is. And if a caller said something which he didn't agree with, it would be a case of, on your bike. That was his famous expression, on your bike. But it goes back to a time when there were some icons working on uh, BBC Radio WM. Sadly, the last of those now, um, Paul Franks, who I mentioned last week, has just retired after 43 years. And I don't think there's anybody left now. In fact, I shouldn't say this, but the breakfast presenter sounds like they're still in nappies, actually. Oh, well, I've said it now. Thank you, Gwen. The catchphrase... I remember from Tony Butler was how about the villa just recently Graham asked you to complain about the closure of railway station ticket offices well our youngest son Graham and myself went to the ticket office in Coventry to go to the Black Country Museum and there was a pile of leaflets saying stop the train companies closing your ticket offices advice safety accessibility so please pick up the address folded card at the ticket office or you can write to them directly the address is free post transport focus po box 5594 south end on c ss 19pz but please be specific about which stations you are concerned about and why and finally, thanks to Robert Franklin for phoning in the results for Gold Bull. Passed on to me by Sarah. You're a great reporter. Thank you as well to Sarah. Robert Franklin's report is in the Gold Bull at the CBS Arena as part of the World Blind Games in the women's final, China beat Japan 3-0. And in the playoffs, Brazil beat Canada 2-0. In the men's, Japan beat South Korea 7-3. And in the playoffs, Ukraine beat Lithuania 9-2. Thank you, Robert. And of course, the women's team, GB, beat Germany 8-2. That's the game I watched with you. And Great Britain scored a penalty due to the German player shouting as she rolled the ball towards the three opponents, guarding the long goal by sitting or in cap position, and then diving one way or the other. And England, one England player on her own was defending, and she saved the penalty, which was really good. The atmosphere was fantastic. I hope I captured some of it in my report that you will hear. Thanks for your messages this week and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. And uh, that's your Postbag for this week uh, with Dave. Uh, and now Margaret continues with more post-war memories from the Charter House. Memory 3. Roy and Mary Allen. 
As children living nearby, Roy and Mary Allen both played in the grounds of Charterhouse and it was natural that both should end up working there. Roy joined the City Council's Parks Department at the end of the 1950s and found himself as a young apprentice helping to look after the Parks Club Bowling Green and extensive flower beds behind the main building. Mary worked in the club and later was part of the catering team that serviced training courses held at Charterhouse when it was in the hands of Tile Hill College. It was a fantastic place to work, said Roy, recalling more than two decades of tending the gardens there. It's its own little world. You were in there and the rest of the world was out here. In the early years, the Charterhouse gardeners used to grow from seed thousands of polyanthus plants for display around the city, using elephant dung from Coventry Zoo, which occupied a site at nearby Whitley until the early 1980s. Mary, too, conjured up a memory of animals as she looked back at her Charterhouse years. The park's club was housed in the old stable block, and she recalled coming across bundles of hay in the loft, gathered as feed for the Shire horses that Colonel Wiley had kept many years before. When we were young, she said, we used to see them in the fields, although we never saw any ploughing going on. Roy retired while Mary was still working at Charterhouse, but he stayed on to care for the gardens, which had fallen into decline in the years after former city archaeologist Margaret Rylett had turned part of them into a formal garden, showcasing different periods of history. As part of that project, historic varieties of apple trees were planted and one, a royal jubilee, turned out to be a rare example. It's still there and in Roy's words, produces beautiful apples. Memory 4. Hayden Bergwin Hayden Bergwin had family history with Charterhouse long before his birth, as his mother was billeted there while serving in the RAF during the Second World War. Later, in the mid-1960s, she worked for the firm of Coventry solicitors, who were responsible for the building's maintenance and made regular visits to talk to the caretakers, and she would often take Hayden with her. As a child, I remember going down there in the car and gamboling around the back where the old bowling green was. I played in the cellars, I played in the rafters, I looked at the murals, I went into the old coach house. With friends, young Hayden also played in the gardens, finding treasures like glazed tiles and beads of quartz and even digging up what turned out to be human bones. At the time, the walls of the monk's cells still stood to a height of around two feet. Twenty years later, home on leave while serving in the armed forces, Hayden took the opportunity to renew his acquaintance with the Charter House, helping out as a fetcher and carrier for archaeologists carrying out a major excavation on the site of the Priory Church and monk cells. Some of the guys on the dig were not from Coventry, he recalled, but they had in me someone who could pinpoint things, so I was pretty useful. The finds from that excavation, including a number of skeletons and many coins, were taken away for analysis and are now part of the Herbert Collections.
but Hayden reckons that there are still areas of the Charterhouse that should be of interest to archaeologists. If you know the living accommodation for the caretakers, the old Victorian building, there's a little bit of garden that should be interesting because it's never been excavated. And of course more next time. Virtually all the daily papers have a small cartoon or cartoon strip to put a smile on our faces among the general news gloom. And probably one of the best known is Fred Bassett, about a male Bassett hound, which first appeared and continues to appear regularly in the Daily Mail. The comic strip was created by Scottish cartoonist Alex Graham, and this article comes from the BBC website and is read by Sheila. A plaque on the wall outside Dumfries Academy celebrates some of its famous former pupils. Alongside novelist and playwright J.M. Barry and Dad's Army star John Lorry is a name which is probably a little less, less known. While some may not have heard of Alex Graham, many will know his cartoon creation, Fred Bassett. It is now 60 years old and still going strong since the first strip appeared in the Daily Mail in July 1963. The cartoonist produced thousands of them prior to his death in 1991 and his daughter Aaron Keith has carried them on working in tandem with artist Michael Martin. Born in 1918, Graham grew up in Dumfries before studying at the Glasgow School of Art and serving in World War II with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. After the war he headed south in search of employment in what was his lifelong passion. It was just what he did. He was always doodling on everything and drawing little gag cartoons. I think probably at school and everything, says Alan. He never wanted to be a painter or a teacher. All he ever wanted to do from a young age was be a cartoonist. He moved to London and started to get a market for his work in the likes of Punch and The New Yorker before his big break with Fred. He was a very internationally renowned cartoonist and doing very well indeed. And then the Daily Mail approached several cartoonists to do a family strip and Dad got the job, says Alan. I was 14 at the time and it was a huge thing for our family because he said afterwards, not at the time, it was like having a sort of pension. It was safe and secure and everything. However, it did not start off entirely smoothly as some readers were critical of his early efforts and the newspaper stepped in to help him with his artistic inspiration. People wrote in and said, What is this extraordinary creature? explained Alan. He couldn't draw dogs and he couldn't draw horses, he knew that. So then the Daily Mail bought him his first basset hound. It was a girl called Frieda. Then when Frieda died, my father himself bought another basset hound, the second Frieda, and that's how it all started. Alan and her husband Alistair have a huge archive of memorabilia which highlights his creative process, not always conductive to family life. He used to go out to his studio after tea and just work on the Fred Bassett strip with wonderful doodles. We have got it all here. The way his thinking was going, she said. When we were children, he didn't have a separate purpose-built studio. We as children had to be in total silence in the house because Dad was thinking and then in the morning he would draw them up. He did that for the best part of 30 years before his death in the early 1990s, described as a gentle genius by the Daily Mail. 
I think some people might have thought of Dad as a dour Scot. He didn't show his humour openly, said Alan. He wasn't a man who told jokes, added Alistair. As far as his wit is concerned, it was observational. After his creator's death, the family had a decision to make on Fred's future. We found 18 months' worth of strips in my father's studio after he died, which gave us time to think whether we would stop Fred Bassett or return old ones or have a new artist, said Alan. Marco Martin was the best he happened to live locally, which was a sheer fluke, and we have worked with him for over 30 years. Speaking from their home in East Sussex, not too far from Ticehurst, where her father spent his final days, Alan is not entirely sure of the secret of Fred's longevity. It's not a laugh out loud, it's just a little twinkle in the morning, that's all, she said. It's not necessarily funny, just a little observation on everything and a moment of calm. The readers know that nothing nasty is going to be there. His master and mistress have never had a name, so I think the readers are thinking of Fred as their dog. From the antics of a besset hound to animals great and small and farming in general, Yorkshire vet Peter Wright reflects on the changes in farming over the course of his career. And this article written by Fergus Kelly in the Daily Express is read by Bill. Yorkshire vet Peter Wright never takes himself too seriously. Remind him he's nation's best-loved vet and all you'll get is a self-deprecating chuckle. But for the star of Channel 5's popular documentary series, Yorkshire Vet, it's a wholly accurate description. And it's a title Peter never envisaged inheriting from his mentor, the original Yorkshire Vet and best-selling author, James Herriot. Ask Peter for the best piece of advice the all-creatures great and small author ever gave him, and he replies, That's easy. Not long after I'd started at the practice, I'd been treating a cat, and it had died. He noticed I was looking glum, and after I told him what had happened, he said, Peter, in our world, you can only do your best. You must never do anything less than your best. If you've done that, you can never reproach yourself. That stuck with me. Born and bred in the North Yorkshire market town of Thursk, the same place Harriet, real name Alf Wright, relocated to from his native Scotland, Peter, 66, spent almost his entire career amid the same stunning countryside. He started working with Harriet while studying veterinary science at Liverpool University in the 1970s, soon became immersed in the rural vet's world, then also included Harriet's partner, Donald Sinclair, real-life Siegfried Farnan, in the books, and celebrated characters such as Mrs Pumphrey and her pampered pooch, Tricky Woo. It's at this juncture I should point out that Peter and I go back away. More than 30 years ago, another national newspaper sent me to Thursk to visit the famous practice at 23 Kirkgate, then headed by Harriet's son, Jim White, now 80 and retired. And I spent the day with Peter on his round. When I remind him of the animals we saw back then, he instantly recalls all the owners 
from where they are now. Even then, country life recounted in the Harriet books was swiftly changing, and as Peter's latest book confirms, it's even more unrecognisable today. Visits in those days inevitably involved a chat, a nice brew, and if you were lucky, a slice of cake, he writes. That was simpler then, and although the days flashed by, it was a more sedate pace of life than life today. It would be around 15 to 20 visits a day on the busiest days, though even if cake was only provided on a third of these, it was still easy to expand your waistline. E and Anatta were the rule of thumb wherever you went. Speaking to the Daily Express this week about his new book, The Tales and Tales of a Yorkshire Vet, Peter confirms a lot of the small farms have disappeared. Farmers' sons and daughters look at how their fathers have struggled to make ends meet over the years, working seven days a week. Their children think, it isn't for me. So, the farms and the land that go with them get sold off larger enterprises. Perhaps even more concerning is the change Peter has noticed in livestock's behaviour towards human beings. I've been attacked by cattle more in the last few years of my career than at any other time, he says. I think the reason for that is that farms nowadays have become bigger and much more mechanised. Small family farms where the farmers would walk among their livestock, shaking bedding up with a pitchfork and filling feeding troughs from bags of food, aren't common anymore. The cattle don't get used to close contact with people. Nowadays, on the big farms, cattle are often only attended by someone who drives in with a tractor and rolls big bales of bedding out. So when a human being comes along, they look at him and, or her think, what's that? Peter also points out the increasing numbers of continental cattle being farmed in Yorkshire and the rest of the UK. Limousine and Charlois breeds, for instance, are naturally more aggressive than traditional British beef breeds like Shorthorn, Exeter and Aberdeen Angus. It's become more of a dangerous job. I know of two people who've been killed in fields full of cows over the past few years. Someone else I know, a respected vet, very familiar with farm animals, was brought down and trampled while walking on a footpath with her young son and dog. She told her son to run, which he did, as did the dog. But the cow broke two of her ribs, and when she put up her arm to protect her head, it kicked her again broke her wrist too. Not that Peter's love for his work and the people and animals who fill his rural idyll is in any way diminished. His new book is full of the sort of stories viewers of the Yorkshire Vet have come to love, from trying to trim the claws of the world's most cantankerous cat, to a late night chase, a flightless bird, or the rear. He also recounts the miraculous recovery of a dog that lost half its skin after being bitten by a snake and the bizarre case of a horse 
with a rat's tooth buried deep inside its jaw. Another valuable lesson Peter has learned from his late mentor is how to delegate more strenuous jobs to younger members of the practice. Jobs like castrating calves, which can be a bit of a rodeo, he says. When Alf, James, saw an entry in the day book, like that in his later days, he would consult an imaginary crystal ball on the office desk and say, Peter, mists are clearing and I can see a young, fit man going out to do that job. And he'd put my additionals down beside the job. However, demands of Peter's TV job, Yorkshire Vet is now on its 16th series, such as its success, along with his veterinary responsibilities, means he still often works a six-day week. It's a schedule that has scarcely changed over the years, and which he says is probably the reason why his daughter, Emily, 35, a criminologist, and electrician's son, Andrew, 33, didn't follow him into the profession. Never saw me, with the hours I put in, he reveals. My wife Lynn, who he has been married to for 37 years, used to say there were three of us in the marriage, me and her and the practice. Peter no longer works from the Georgian townhouse in Thursk, where the practice used to be based, but that is now the world of James Herriot's museum, which attracts tens of thousands of Yorkshire vet fans every year. It reminds Peter of the original James Herriot fans, who used to queue out of the waiting room, into the corridor, and down the street, watching books they wanted signed by the great man. Whenever I go into the museum, there's something that's been added, he said. But to me, it's still my place of work. Peter now hopes his fame will help raise funds for a project to turn Thirsk's former cottage hospital into a hospice, which will also offer home care. In June, he will embark on a gruelling coast-to-coast cycle ride between Morecambe in Lancashire and Bridlington in East Riding to help raise money for the hospice project. Yorkshire Vet has ensured Peter is recognised far beyond the confines of his corner of North Yorkshire. And he and Lynn have had the chance to see more of the world in recent years, including India. He says, I was standing in awe in front of the Taj Mahal one day when there was a tap on my shoulder and I turned to see a husband with his wife who said, I know you from somewhere. As soon as I opened my mouth and he heard my accent, he explained, I know, Yorkshire Vet. And this couple were from Melbourne. They'd seen me on Australian TV. The thing I'm most proud of about the programme is that it appeals to children from four years old to fans in their 90s. There's not many shows that can say that. His old boss, James Herriot, would surely approve. How farming has evolved and changed over the years. Now Alan continues with the second part of the series titled Hurdy Gurdy, with reminiscences portraying the life in Coventry at the turn of the 20th century. 
Our Grace used to run errands for everybody in the court, taking babies out in old broken-down perambulators, for which she sometimes, only sometimes, received a half-penny. The perambulators were a sort of wicker armchair affair, with two long handles coming out from underneath somewhere and two metal props to act as a sort of brake. There was no hood on the ones the neighbours in our court could afford. How the poor babies ever kept dry when it rained, I don't know. Grace used to push these contraptions about with two babies in sometimes, one at each end, as well as the groceries. She used to push these down the side and at the back of the pillow. There was always plenty of babies to take out. There were more plentiful than money. There was always more shopping to do on Saturday mornings. The money was all gone by Monday or Tuesday when a visit to Uncle would be necessary. In addition to running errands and baby-minding, Grace used to help Ma'am do the cleaning on Saturday morning, as she was the eldest and considered old enough. The tiny living room would look like a cafe when it was closed, as all the chairs would be put on the tables off the floor, so the dirt could be swept into the fireplace. The fender also had to go on the table on some newspapers. It had a steel top which had to be rubbed with emery paper until it shone like a mirror. The grate was black-leaded and that had to be cleaned too. The black lead was in a tin to which was added a little water and then a dubby sort of brush was pressed onto the sticky mess and squashed around and around then put onto the hobs and front of the grate. Don't forget the bars, our mum would shout. So, of course, all this had to be done before the fire could be lit, and in the winter it was perishing cold, as this was the only heat in the house. The long fire irons, which were kept in the fender, had to be rubbed with emery paper, too, and put on the table with the fender. Then the hearth had to be whitened with a hearthstone and left to dry. It looked lovely while it was clean, but had to be done regularly to keep it nice and clean. Meanwhile, all the knives, forks and spoons had to be cleaned, the knives rubbed onto a knife board on which bath brick had been sprinkled. We both hated all this cleaning on Saturday mornings. It was so cold and uncomfortable, especially in the depth of winter. Grace didn't mind the scrubbing of the deal-top table and the red-tiled floor so much. At least you could see something for all your trouble. But all that knife-cleaning and blackleading was to be, her thinking, a waste of time. No sooner was it all done and looking spick and span, and then, for instance, the black-leaded kettle, which always stood on the hob, would boil over and spit all over the nice whitened hearth. In the middle of all these chores, the rent man would call. He would tip-tap-tap-tap on the door with his walking stick, startling us all. Mum used to say it might be the police coming to arrest our dad for being drunk and disorderly, which she often dreaded as he was so argumentative and quarrelsome when he was drunk. She used to warn him about it, but he only sneered and snarled back at her, oh, off we go, woman, you're always worrying about something. We would stand still and look one another for a second, so every time the man would peer through the window, pulling the lace curtain to one side, oh, so it's only Mr. Dexter, she would say with relief, open the door, Mr. Dector was a tall, gaunt man, about six foot tall, very upright, as if he had a rod up his back. He had a sanctimonious voice, a long, thin face, wore pince-nez, tight glasses on his nose. He would say, Good morning, rent please. His time never varied, or his voice. 
We needn't have worried about who it was, but we always did. Man would say, Just a minute, Mr. Dexter, and reach up to the mantel shelf over the fireplace where he, she always kept the rent book, together with the three and sixpence, all ready for him. If she asked him to do any repairs, the answer was always the same. No repairs, madam. But he always pocketed the rent. The local Earls and Echo print some interesting articles on things going on close to us here at the Resource Centre. And in this one, Keith tells us about Spencer Park Pavilion, halfway there. The Friends of Spencer Park learnt on the 29th of June that their bid submitted to the Government Community Ownership Fund for funds to renovate and refurbish the Spencer Park Pavilion had been successful. A total of £155,000 had been awarded for the capital costs, plus approximately £30,000 for the first year of operation of the revamped facility as a community space and cafe. This was in major part due to the tremendous support from the local community at meetings via an online petition and with letters of support from many key people. Coventry City Council have also been hugely helpful, providing funds for the preparatory work on the bid and agreeing to lease the pavilion at a peppercorn rent. However, this award is just under half the funds that are required. The government money will not be released until the contribution they are making is matched, and this must be achieved in a relatively short period. The Friends of Spencer Park have drawn up plans the funding organisations they will approach over the next month or two, but there is likely to be a huge funding gap to bridge. Together with the fact that funders want to see the local community uh, contribute, Friends are launching a crowdfunding appeal. The aim is to raise over £10,000. Peter Elias, who is leading the fundraising efforts on behalf of the Friends, said, we think it is really important to give the local community the opportunity to make a contribution, however large or small that may be, to ensure that we achieve our goal to make the Edwardian Pavilion the centrepiece of the park, providing space for community groups to meet, subsidised by a modern cafe staffed by volunteers. Together with the renovated tennis courts, the two playgrounds that have been added and the work done to run events in the park. This just shows how a community, community can rally round to make a difference to our local environment. Councillor Anthony Tucker added, It's been a pleasure to help the Friends of Spencer Park set up their crowdfunding campaign to support the refurbishment of the pavilion. I want to encourage everyone in our area to give what they can to this vital community project, which will make a massive difference to the park and will benefit the entire community. You'll recall last week Dave started his report on the World Blind Games, which was mostly held in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago, and describing some of the extraordinary ways that blind people participate in sports. Now he concludes his visit to those games.
Okay, I've been to Sally Barker. Right, so you're in, in charge, basically. You're doing the opening ceremony. Yeah, I'm doing the opening ceremony. I'm going to be declaring the games open at the oh, end yeah. of the ceremony. Um, I'm chair of British Blind Sports, and I'm also chair of the organising committee for the games. So yeah. I'm really excited. I've been working on this for a number of years now, and yeah. finally it's happening. So that's fantastic. Okay, if, if people are interested, if any of the listeners, who are interested in joining British Blind Sports and taking up sport, I mean, what do they have to do? Well, if they go and look on our website, yeah. our British Blind Sport website, on there it'll tell you how to get involved, if, what sports you can do, um, if you want to become a member, you can be a member. But it's a great hub of information yeah. for blind and partially sighted people that want to take up yeah. sport or physical activity. Yes, OK, I'm speaking to Lord Mayor of Coventry and Lady Mayor. So how do you feel about being at the World Blind Games, both of you? This is the first time they have arrived in this country and we are very pleased and honoured that they have been held here in Birmingham and all the part of the country. So we love to sort of join in and support them and give them all the encouragement. That's fantastic. How, how do you feel, uh, <laughs> Lady Mary's Christian? Very happy and I'm so happy that I can see so many people so wonderful buildings and never been before and I'm very very happy. Have you been to Birmingham before? Uh, yeah, I've been but it was a night time that time, you know. Yeah. But uh, this is the first time in the day that like, you can see everything. See the buildings and sympathy hall. Yeah, never yeah. been. First time. Enjoying myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank enjoy you. the games both of you. Thank you very much. This is the Australian blind cricket teams. Oh, it is. Yeah, fantastic. So you, you, you've come a long way, haven't you? We have, yep. It's about 30 hours of travel all up, so it's been busy. <laughs> you, you've got over the jet lag then? I have, yeah. Good sleep last night, so... <laughs> okay, I'm speaking to Matt McCarthy, who's the, you're the captain of the Australian Blind Cricket Team. Yes, yeah, that's correct, yeah. Fantastic. So what, how do you play, play cricket when you're blind? Um, obviously our game's just... Um, the main difference from side of cricket is our ball. Um, obviously it has a ball bearings in it and we bowl it underarm and it's got to land once before halfway and then once before the crease. How do you feel about being in Birmingham? Oh, it's very exciting. It's great to, to be here in Birmingham uh, with a, a team of Australians representing a number of sports and uh, I'm with the cricket team and we're really excited to get playing in the next few days. Yes, I'm speaking to Lily. So uh, tell me about the Indian football team. Uh, football. Well, I, I saw one of their... Um, matches uh, the other day um, yeah. are really good I and mean, I think they're one of the um, they've only been recently formed and yeah. uh, from like uh, I think donations and uh, fundraising and this is their first well I think it's a women's football team um, and they uh, yeah I saw them play and they're really good they beat Austria, Austria uh, 1-0 I'm speaking to Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands. So how do you feel about being at the uh, the blind uh, sports opening ceremony? It's a wonderful privilege and of course I'm very honoured that the whole of the blind sports world has come here to Birmingham and the West Midlands and of course some of the activities will be in Coventry. Uh, and you're from the University of University Birmingham. University of Birmingham, yeah, and we are really, really privileged to be hosting the Athletes Village. So we have got lots of athletes staying with us and some of the sport on campus, so we are really, really lucky. 
Well, I'm seated on the balcony of the Symphony Hall. It's a beautiful building with about three tiers and the stalls. And there's hundreds of people down below. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, the audience, they're clapping, waiting for the opening ceremony to start. And here's the Inner Vision Orchestra, playing, singing along to the Parade of the Nation's Flags. Bulgaria! for the games. turned out to be the referee of the gold ball that's taking place at the CBS Arena in Coventry. So that's all from the opening ceremony of the World Blind Games. Thank you very much and bye for now. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition. So from the team of me, Nigel Hewin, it's goodbye until next week. <laughs>